Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, February 18th, uh, 2023. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in again uh, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Later on, we'll be coming up with our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll feature dispatches on the opening of the African Union 36th Ordinary Summit that's being held this weekend in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Women in the Democratic Republic of Congo's eastern city of Goma have held demonstrations demanding withdrawal of M23 rebels from their city. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea has reportedly conducted another missile test inside the country ahead of Pentagon military exercises in the region. And the Federal Republic of Nigeria is slated to hold elections next week during a financial crisis inside the continent's most populous state. In the second hour, we look closer at the ongoing African Union Summit in Ethiopia. Later, we continue our African American History Month programming with a focus on the lifetimes and contributions of archivist and bibliophile Arturo Schomburg. Finally, we listen to excerpts uh, from a briefing delivered uh, by the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, during uh, the current African Union Summit. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We're going to take our musical interlude uh, with the Morogoro Jazz Orchestra uh, from the East African state of the United Republic of Tanzania. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
Vamos y ni huevo. 
mpenzi wangu kwa mambo yako Sina la kufanya mie wako naliao Kila nikuwa na pompenzi Sina furaha Ebu jireke bije mpenzi wangu Tabia hiyo Kila nikuwa na pompenzi Sina furaha Ujireke biche mpenzi wangu Tabia hiyo
Welcome back. That was uh, the sound of the Morgul Jazz Orchestra from uh, the East African state of the United Republic of Tanzania. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines uh, in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. African leaders uh, met earlier today to discuss a slew continent as United Nations Chief Antonio Guterres urged uh, the delegates to do more to bring peace to conflict-hit regions. Africa is reeling from a record drought in the Horn of Africa and deadly violence in the Sahel region and the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo with the two-day African Union summit aiming to address these issues and jumpstart a free trade pact, which, of course, was impacted uh, by uh, the pandemic and, of course, the current uh, fallout uh, from uh, the sanctions against the Russian Federation on the part of uh, the NATO countries uh, and, uh, of course, uh, many other imperialist centers. Most of the sessions are being held behind closed doors at the AEO headquarters in the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa. There's more than 30 presidents and prime ministers who are in attendance, and we'll have more information on uh, the afternoon. 36th uh, Ordinary Summit uh, later on in our program. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, hundreds of displaced women in Goma called for the departure of the rebel group M23. Uh, this was an action that took place yesterday. Uh, they were demanding an end to the violence in eastern Congo. Uh, the women said they're suffering from hunger and their children have been unable to attend school. The conflict in eastern DRC has gone on for decades uh, with more than 100 armed groups fighting for control of geographical regions uh, that are being exploited by multinational uh, mineral uh, and strategic uh, resources firms, uh, while others protect their communities, as has triggered an exodus of uh, people. The demonstration took place while the East African heads of state were meeting in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, at a special summit to discuss the security issue in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The day before the protest, the Congolese army clashed with M23 rebels just a few kilometers uh, from the city of Goma. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the Democratic People's Republic of Congo, or in the uh, uh, Democratic People's Republic of uh, Korea, uh, earlier today, uh, the government, according to Western reports, uh, fired a long-range missile from its capital into the sea off Japan, according to its neighbors. A day after it threatened to take strong measures against South Korea and the U.S. over their joint military exercises. According to the South Korean and Japanese militaries, the missile was fired on a high angle, apparently to avoid reaching the neighbor's territories, and traveled about 900 kilometers. It's about 560 miles at a maximum altitude of 5,700 kilometers, about 3,500 miles, during an hour-long flight. The details were similar uh, to the DPRK's Kwazone-17 intercontinental ballistic missile test flight that took place just uh, in November, uh, which experts said demonstrated potential to reach the U.S. mainland if fired on a normal trajectory. And uh, finally, uh, the finally uh, in the Federal Republic of Nigeria, um, 
people are, of course, um, impacted severely uh, by the recent uh, currency shortage and the security difficulties leading up uh, to a national uh, parliamentary and presidential elections uh, that are taking place uh, later this month. Um, of course, um, as people become more desperate for cash in Nigeria, uh, the impact is likely to spill into the February 25th uh, presidential election. Nigerians hope to elect someone to fix challenges ranging from a security crisis that has killed thousands in the past year to an ailing economy. The shortage of currency has already created significant hardship, which could make a greater number of voters vulnerable to buying and ratchet up election tensions even further. That's according to the International Crisis Group, a Western-based and pro-Western think tank. Facing increasing uh, pressure to find a solution, President Muhammadu Buhari, uh, who has reached his term limits and leaves office in May, said he directed the Central Bank of Nigeria to deploy all legitimate resources and legal means to ensure people enjoy easy access to cash withdrawals. <clears throat> With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is uh, go to our website uh, at Pan-African News. Blogspot.com. Uh, that's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you need to do is uh, go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, that is at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. I'm so in love. 
Welcome back, and uh, that was the voice of uh, the legendary Billie Holiday and the tune entitled I'll Never Smile Again, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit on this Saturday evening, uh, February the 18th, uh, 2023, and uh, February is African American History Month, and all during the course of this month, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast has been bringing you special programming related to the history and struggles of peoples of African descent uh, in the United States and indeed around the world. Right now, we're going to go back and uh, listen and review and re-examine the lifetimes and contributions of Arturo Schomburg, uh, an African-American uh, who, in fact, uh, was responsible uh, for the founding in many ways of uh, African and African-American studies in the United States. He was born uh, in the Caribbean island nation of Puerto Rico and, of course, settled in the United States and became a force in the preservation, documentation, and distribution of knowledge uh, related to the history and culture of African people. Let's listen to an interview which examines the legacy of Arturo Schomburg. This is Against the Grain. My name is C.S. Song. The push to abolish slavery and achieve racial equality, the struggles for Cuban and Puerto Rican independence, efforts to unite people of African descent across national boundaries, the drive to write black people back into the history books. All this and much more was experienced, observed, and acted upon by a singular man named Arturo Alfonso Schomburg. A black Puerto Rican born in 1874, Schomburg moved from that island to New York City in 1891, where he participated in movements for Cuban and Puerto Rican independence and in struggles against racism. According to Jesse Hoffnung-Garskoff, Schomburg's life on the color line, 
his direct knowledge and experience of racism both in Latin America and the U.S., and his resultant affinity with African Americans was paradigmatic for Afro-Latinos in the first half of the 20th century. Jesse Hoffman Garskoff is an associate professor of history and American culture at the University of Michigan. He's contributed an article about Arturo Schomburg and the New York City he inhabited to the new volume, The Afro-Latina Latino Reader, History and Culture in the United States. When I spoke recently with Jesse, I asked him what achievements Arturo Schomburg is best known for. He was a, a, a prolific collector of documents and books, almost entirely related to people of African descent around the Americas, uh, as well as in Europe. And he's, I think, principally known for that collection, which he first put together as an amateur collector in his apartment in Brooklyn, uh, using his own money, but then later donated to the New York Public Library, and it became at the 135th Street branch of the New York Public Library, it became basically the most prominent worldwide center for the study of black culture and history, which is called the Schomburg Center now, um, and still there on 135th Street in Harlem. And what interested you most about him in the context of this piece he wrote for this book, The Afro-Latina Latino Reader? His intellectual accomplishments are are fantastic. I mean, his, his collection and his involvement in the Harlem Renaissance and in other kinds of intellectual activity in New York were, before I got interested in them, these were the main things that people had studied about him, just his kind of prolific intellectual production. And I was really interested as a student of migration and of Latino migration in particular, and also a student of the Caribbean. Um, I was really interested in his racial identity. I was very interested in the particular course that he took from his birth in San Juan to his death in New York City, both as a migrant, as a Puerto Rican migrant, but also as a person of African descent who negotiated over the course of his life his position within Puerto Rican society and then his position within the society of the United States. And, and I was really interested because he, he was kind of an unusual figure in that sense. We, we had a, a view, which I think is changing now, but a view, a fairly standard view of Puerto Rican racial identity in which historians and sociologists and others have imagined that Puerto Ricans of African descent did not desire to make contact with African Americans in the United States until much later. And it turned out from Schomburg's story that, in fact, he did. He, he was a Puerto Rican of African descent who was very much engaged in international and pan-African movements uh, very early in the 20th century. But what the other thing that I found very interesting about him is that does not necessarily mean that he did not also participate in the kinds of movements that other Puerto Ricans of color were involved in on the island and in respect to Cuba, in which they were trying to build a nationalist movement, which included both whites and blacks together as Puerto Ricans and as Cubans. So he was, in a significant sense, cosmopolitan. Oh, he, he was absolutely cosmopolitan. The, absolutely, I agree with that characterization 100%. Now, Schomburg was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico, as you said. In 1874, his mother was of Danish West Indian origin, and his father was ethnic German. What else should we know about Schomburg's early life? He was 
educated, as far as we can tell, at a religious institution, which is not uncommon. A lot of the religious institutions in the cities of the island were open to, um, at least at the elementary level, were open to children of color and children from, from non-elite backgrounds, right, working-class kids. Um, his mother, as far as we know, earned her living washing clothing, which was not an elite status. And the fact that she was able to send her child to school reflects both the openness of those institutions and also, of course, her great sacrifices to, to put him through it. But what's really interesting is after school, he seems to have apprenticed himself at a local print shop. He worked in a print house that was run by a, a man with liberal leanings. And what I've found is that he seems to have gotten engaged with intellectual life through his uh, apprenticeship as basically a worker. A print shop worker would be, was, was a working category like a barrel maker or a silversmith or a blacksmith, but had the one unique quality, which is that in order to do it, you had to be literate. In the act of doing it, you actually came into lots of contact with, with the world of ideas. And Schomburg wasn't the only man of his generation on the island who was of African descent um, and who really educated himself and became a public figure through apprenticeship at the type shop. And it, in fact, turns out, I've found out since this article appeared, that a number of the people who were organizers of the movement that he was a part of in New York City were also black or mulatto typographers who had gotten interested in journalism and history on the island in the process of typesetting the work of the leading liberal thinkers on the island. Very interesting. When Schomburg moved to New York City in 1891, were there a lot of Puerto Ricans living there? No, there were very, very few. There was a relatively small group of Puerto Ricans who were in New York for commercial reasons. That is to say, the people on the island who were involved in overseas trade, many of them kept a residence in New York City if their basic business was with the United States. But there was a relatively small, even smaller group of Puerto Ricans who were of working class origin. They were not rural laborers. They were like Schomburg, urban working classes. But the real growth in Puerto Rican migration to the mainland comes after 1898 and, and actually even after 1917, after the beginning of World War I. So he was really in a, in a very small community when he arrived. Now, in New York City, Schomburg joined a Masonic lodge that had been founded by Cubans of African descent. Under what circumstances did the founders of that lodge leave Cuba? The founders of the lodge that he belonged to, which was called the Sol de Cuba Lodge, the, the son of Cuba, son in the sense of the rising sun, left Cuba for the most part in the 1870s. Um, and the 1870s were a period, especially the late 1870s, were a period of significant turmoil in Cuba. There was a, a war of independence in Cuba you know, 30 years before the War of 1898, which we're, we're familiar with in the United States. Uh, starting the Spanish-American War. The, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the Cuban-Spanish-American War. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But 30 years before the conclusion of that war, there was another war in Cuba, which lasted for 10 years and was called the Ten Years' War. It started in 1868 and ended in 1878. And it was a kind of a remarkable struggle. It started out with a group of white, Cuban-born, what we call Creole, white slave owners, uh, who decided that they needed to separate from Spain in order to pursue their own self-interest in the same way that the white slave owners of the U.S. South, you know, wanted to separate from England. But unlike
unlike the slave owners of the U.S. South, or what became the U.S. South, in the process of declaring their independence, they actually decided to manumit or free their slaves and invited the freed slaves to join them in the struggle for free Cuba. And of course, they did this with the imagination that they would remain basically in control and that the slaves would, would join in a kind of auxiliary way to, to their masters and would be so grateful for the manumission that they would never you know, make any demands uh, for equality. But that's not the way wars work. And after 10 years of war, many, many of the people who had been previously enslaved, as well as many people who had been previously free but were of African descent, had worked their way up through the military uh, ranks. And in fact, some of the leading generals of the war, including a man named Antonio Maceo, were men of African descent. And so what, what happened was eventually Spain was able to break the rebellion in many ways by splitting off the, the original white Creole supporters from the more radical uh, working class and African descended warriors or soldiers who had, and, and leaders who had come to the fore as, in the process of this really radically transformative movement. So in, in 1878, when the first group of Cubans are really starting to populate New York City, many of them were exiles who had either been participants in the struggle of 1868-1878, or especially those who were African-descended, were men who really resented the peace that had been signed in 1878 and felt it had betrayed the ideals of the movement, in particular, that it had not achieved the end of slavery in Cuba, which was one of the main ideals that the movement had proposed. So were you saying that the issue of the abolition of slavery was intimately tied to the issue of Cuban independence in the mind of many revolutionary leaders, at least for a time? Uh, yeah, no, for, for most of the time. I think the rebellion in Cuba, including the white Creole wealthy planters who were part of the rebellion, always officially linked the two things. And that was one of the ways that they recruited many, many soldiers from free black and from and, and many enslaved soldiers on the island. And as those soldiers joined the ranks, they, uh, they offered their own definitions of what freedom should mean, right? So the end of slavery can mean many things, as we know. It can mean anything from a very limited form of citizenship to full citizenship for the people who had been freed. And so there was a general consensus about the idea that liberty should come, you know, that the end of slavery should come with independence, but there was an increasing divergence about what that liberty should mean, and that divergence ends up splitting the movement, and the peace that gets signed between the, the leaders of the insurgency, many of whom are white and Creole, and the Spanish authorities is a peace that agrees that does not include the end of slavery. So the, those who are dissidents, those including many of the men who came to New York, they felt as if their one-time allies had betrayed a shared goal of the end of slavery, as well as a shared goal of the independence of Cuba. Um, and so, for example, when the men who formed the Masonic Lodge that Schomburg eventually a uh, decade later will join, when they're forming that lodge in Brooklyn in 1880, given who they are and where they came from, we can be fairly certain of what their view of the peace signed in 1878 was. And we can be fairly certain that they felt that it was a, basically a treason to the Cuban cause, both because it did not satisfy their demands for independence, but also and especially because it did not satisfy their desire and, and very, I think, well-founded desire to end slavery and to create a Cuban national identity that would be inclusive of and respect the rights of the people descended from Africa and Cuba. Jesse Hoffman-Garskoff joins us on Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. He's Associate Professor of History and American Culture at the University of Michigan. We are talking about an article he wrote, The World of Arturo Alfonso Schomburg, in the new volume, The Afro-Latina Latino Reader, History and Culture in the United States. Did the founders of Sol de 
Cuba. And again, this is the Masonic Lodge that Schomburg joined in New York City. Did the founders, these Cubans, did they affiliate themselves with the the sort of Cuban Masonic establishment in New York City at the time? Uh, no, they didn't. There were multiracial Cuban lodges in New York that had emerged as part of the movement. They were oftentimes either formally or informally linked to the independence movement that had existed for 10 years in Cuba, and that I think probably right before the Sol de Cuba lodge members formed their own lodge, were probably experiencing some tensions within those lodges as a result of the breakup of the movement in Cuba. Uh, and so what's really interesting is that the Sol de Cuba founders, rather than joining that that multiracial Cuban lodge that was still mostly run and, run and operated by white Cubans with the secondary participation of, of black and brown Cubans, they actually form their own lodge and they apply to the Prince Hall Masons, which is the African-American or no, at the time known as the Negro Masons in the United States. Masonry in the United States was segregated in a way that mainstream masonry in Cuba was not. And so rather than join the mainstream Cuban form, they join the African-American branch of North American masonry. To me, that's fascinating because it's a moment where the tensions, where, as I identify them, the tensions that exist within this Cuban movement, um, the, men, uh, the men of color in New York who are involved in those tensions are able to find an outlet and an independent kind of base of, of activism and organizing for themselves or even socialization for themselves through a diasporic contact, which is to say through a contact that they make with other people of African descent from another context that they have moved to. And to me, that's a kind of a key moment for understanding the world that Schomburg comes from. Yeah, there's a suggestion that Schomburg and his colleagues, his comrades at Sol de Cuba Lodge, that somehow joining or becoming affiliated with the mainstream Cuban Masonic establishment would somehow constrain them or limit their activity or viewpoint. I think that that's true. I think it's a difficult point to make. It's not that the mainstream Cuban lodges that were available to them in New York were wholly opposed to racial equality. And many of them were actually formally in their, even in their liturgy, I've seen the, the kinds of things that they were reading to each other in their secret meetings, were supporting the notion of racial equality, right? Which is actually quite remarkable, especially if you compare it to mainstream U.S. lodges, which were segregated, right? But I do see a parallel between what goes on in New York and what's going on on the island, which is that in the wake of the peace that was signed in 1878, you see a proliferation in Cuba of new organizations that are formed by men of color and that are that are designed for socialization with other men of color and these have political outlets they become places for leading men of color to mobilize political support for particular political parties that they want to affiliate with they also have intellectual bases they tend to be places where there are literary readings and where there are um, sometimes there are newspapers that are published with them and they also have political valence which is to say that these are men who have been involved in a struggle alongside white allies and they recognize that that alliance is tenuous and and is difficult and they see these independent bases of organizing as offering an opportunity for them to engage in the alliances from a position of greater strength right they can engage in these alliances they can participate in the alliances that sometimes constrain their claims as black men sometimes they have to say 
yes, we are Cubans. We will conform to the, the will of the Cuban people as a whole and not mention the fact that we have, we have our own concerns as a minority within the Cuban community. They can do that while still being able to resort to, to use their own institutions in order to make stronger claims about their rights and, and for advancement. And I think that that's what happens in New York, too. This group of Cuban activists and migrants, they find a way by creating their own basically society of color, which is what they're called on the island, their own Masonic Lodge, which they control and in which they can set the terms of, of the way that race and, and civilization and, uh, and masculinity will be defined. They do it by affiliating themselves with the African-American branch of Masonry rather than joining the Cuban branch of Masonry. And I think this becomes a base of their power when they then do still engage with, with white Cubans uh, in New York. They can do so from a base of independent social organizing. Did Schomburg and his colleagues at this uh, Cuban Masonic Lodge, did they associate much with whites in their neighborhoods and social circles? It's, it's obviously really hard to tell what they did on a daily day basis, but what I, I have evidence for a couple things. Um, it's clear that they did maintain ties with white Cubans in their places of work. Many of them were cigar workers, and most of the cigar factories, as far as we know, in, in the Cuban cigar factories in New York at this time had an integrated workforce. Um, and so in their class-based politics, that is, as workers, when they organized with respect to their bosses, um, they lived in a multiracial world, and a multiracial world that was, that was at least theoretically committed to racial equality, although that, as we know, theoretical commitments to racial equality don't always translate into actual equality, but there was a theoretical commitment there. We also know that they socialized with white Cubans in their political organizations, especially into the 1890s. But in, well, the thing that I found in doing this research, which was, which was so surprising, well, I, I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but it was so novel when, when, when I discovered it, is that if you look at the U.S. Census, you can find that in their personal lives and in their residential patterns, the Cubans and then the Puerto Ricans who joined them and were part of, the, of this Masonic movement for the most part lived in parts of the city that were mostly populated by other people of African descent, um, most of whom weren't Cuban, most of whom were either from the United States or from the English-speaking Caribbean. So if you look at where the members of the lodge were living, they were working with white Cubans, they were oftentimes in class-based organizations with white Cubans, but they were living among, uh, among blacks. And even beyond that, it wasn't just that there were Cuban families living in buildings that were reserved for blacks, but in fact, many of them were forming families with the people that they were living among. So there were uh, at least five or six of the founding members that I could identify before they even founded the lodge had married African-American women um, from the United States and were, had, you know, had basically established households that were arranged along the lines of a kind of an African diaspora unity, even as they were working in factories that were aligning along kind of multiracial class unity and as they were engaged in a political struggle that was aligning along a multiracial national unity as Cubans. His name is Jesse Hoffman-Garskoff. He teaches history and American culture at the University of Michigan. He's author of A Tale of Two Cities, Santo Domingo and New York after 1950. And he wrote an interesting article about Arturo Alfonso Schomburg for the new volume, The Afro-Latina Latino Reader. Schomburg was a black Puerto Rican born in 1874 who moved to New York City and actively participated in movements for Cuban and Puerto Rican independence. 
and in struggles against racism based on notions of unity among people of African descent. You write or you cite certain studies, Jesse, that indicate that Puerto Ricans of African descent at that time in New York City generally refused to associate with African Americans who they saw as having to deal with so much racial prejudice. And what you're saying here is that Schomburg and some of his colleagues really defied that kind of conventional behavior. I guess what I'm saying is two things, because uh, I, I, that is true. There has been in the historiography, in the, in the way that historians have written about this period, a presumption that as a kind of a starting point, Puerto Ricans, both for reasons of their own racial identities that they carry with them from the island and also for reasons for the reason of trying to avoid the, the segregation and the, and the discrimination that's imposed upon African Americans in this period, um, that they, they try and avoid, quote, being mistaken for black, right? That there's a kind of a sense that, that to the extent that they can fold into a Latino category or a foreign category, they will, to try and avoid the kinds of, of oppression that are imposed upon Afri- you know, African Americans from the English-speaking world. And, and I think that, yes, I think that Schomburg really offers a kind of an exception to, to that, to the extent that that was a pattern. And then when you look at Schomburg in the context of this broader world, where there are Cubans and Puerto Ricans of color who are who are actively engaged with African Americans does tend to kind of break down that presumption. But I do want to be careful about it because part of what they're doing is by choice and part of what they're doing is by force, right? We don't I don't want to suggest that they're living in African-American neighborhoods simply because they chose to. I mean, I think it's probably pretty clear that they do because there are forces that segregate them, right? They may not have the opportunity to live in other parts of the city. Um, mm-hmm. And they may have also have limited choice in romantic partners as well. But I think that some of the things that they're doing, some of the choice to, to join social organizations, some of the evidence that I've been able to collect about their political engagements, you know, political alliances with African-Americans, and clearly the, the social world, the, the Masonic social world and other kinds of places where they – there it seems like they actually are – consciously make a decision both to engage with African-Americans, but also very clearly to think about and compare the conditions for people of African descent in the various societies that they're living in, right? So they're becoming, as you said, cosmopolitans. They're becoming uh, comparativists and thinking about the different models for political activism, the different models for ra- of racism, and trying to figure out how to insert themselves and use those models to their advantage in the different societies that they're, that they're living in. You write in this article about the Cuban Revolutionary Party and its activities in New York City and the ways in which Arturo Schomburg became involved with the party. A key leader in that party in the Cuban independence struggle was the exiled Jose Marti, who lived for a number of years in New York City. You write that Marti was a symbol of enlightened white leadership. How so? So Marti came out of this world of Masonic teachings about race that I've already mentioned, right? He came out of the world of the Ten Years' War, uh, and he came out very clearly of the world of New York City in this period. He was a friend to and and in many ways a, a close ally of some of the leading Cuban leaders in, in the city. And the combination of all of those contacts led him to develop an idea about Cuban nationality and race that was really kind of unusual for white nationalists in this period. So he he very clearly argued that race should not be a factor in national identity, that basically the national project should put blacks and whites on equal footing, and that everybody should 
should come to the table and everybody should be included based on a shared national identity and the idea of racial division should be left behind. And he actually also unusual in the 1890s for, for white intellectuals in the Atlantic world, most of whom believed some version of scientific racism. He argued that the difference between blacks and whites, to the extent that there was one, was not a biological difference or a scientific difference, but rather a difference based on social prejudice. So to the extent that blacks, for instance, had less education in Cuban society, this was because social prejudice had prevented them from fulfilling their potential. And so he argued that the Cuban nation should allow everyone to fulfill his potential. He mostly talked in terms of men. Uh, his potential um, at the same time that it recognized the participation of of all sectors of society. And for the black Cubans and Puerto Ricans who joined the movement that he led, his leadership was really fundamental because they saw him as being a kind of a crucial link between themselves and their own project of racial advancement and this now bigger nationalist project that was reformulating in the 1890s. Jose Marti famously said that in a liberated Cuba, there would be no blacks or whites only Cubans, and this kind of colorblindness espoused by Marti was not without disadvantages. What were they? I think the clearest disadvantage is that Marti's idea that there should be no blacks nor whites very similar to some of the kind of post-racial ideas that we encounter nowadays in, in U.S. society, um, can sometimes, uh, and sometimes even frequently, become a way of excluding conversations about the really existing inequalities in society, right? So once there's a kind of a, an accepted nationalist discourse that race should not be a factor in conversations, then when people of color rightfully raise the existing racial discrimination that they face or the long way to go that the nation has to actually fulfilling its promise, it's possible for people who are not sympathetic to racial equality to say, wait a second, we shouldn't talk about that. That's, that's racist. We're beyond race in the society. And, you know, I think, I think of Stephen Colbert, who I think is a great satirist of this, where he says, he says in his interviews, I don't see race, so I don't even know if I'm white or black. He, he's really he, he's satis, he's satirizing a, a real predicament that these kinds of cross-racial alliances offer because, you know, especially in the context of the 1890s in the United States where Jim Crow is on the rise, where the ostensible allies of racial equality, the Republican Party in the United States, is, is backing off from its commitment to racial equality and to full citizenship, you know, where lynching is, is on the rise. The idea of a nationalist movement that is even abstractly committed to racial equality is quite alluring and very powerful and, and offers black activists their own leverage to say, wait a second, you can't be racist. That's against the national norm. That's against our joint project. But it does so by asking them also at moments and sometimes in very, very key ways to give up a certain amount of power to organize themselves independently. Uh, it asks them to do that. They, of course, never actually give up their independent organizations, but it asks them to renounce the idea that they will organize themselves as a race, and to basically present themselves only as Cubans. Jesse Hoffnung-Garskoff joins us today on Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio and online at kpfa.org. He is Associate Professor of History and American Culture at the University of Michigan, where his areas of interest include modern Latin American and Caribbean history, Latina, Latino studies, international migrations and transnationalism, music and popular culture, and poor people and social movements. We'll take a short music break and speak more with Jesse. Please stay with us. Welcome back. And uh, this is uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. 
And uh, we're listening to a archival audio file uh, featuring an interview on the lifetimes and contributions of Arturo Schomburg. This is African American History Month in the United States, and our programming throughout this month uh, has been, of course, reflective of our programming throughout the year, uh, focusing on uh, the actual history of African people uh, in the United States, on the continent, and indeed throughout the world. And uh, we're going to return uh, to uh, this interview on uh, the contributions of Arturo Schomburg. And this is Against the Grain. My name is C.S. Song, and Jesse Hoffnung-Garskoff, his last name is spelled H-O-F-F-N-U-N-G-G-A-R-S-K-O-F, teaches history and American culture at the University of Michigan. We've put links on againstthegrain.org to his faculty page at Michigan, to his book, A Tale of Two Cities, Santo Domingo and New York After 1950, and to the Afro-Latina Latino Reader, History and Culture in the United States, to which Jesse has contributed an article about Arturo Alfonso Schomburg, and more generally, and perhaps in my mind, more importantly, having read this essay about the broader political and racial environment of New York City in the late 1800s and 1900s and how Schomburg interacted with that environment and what he was able to accomplish. You mentioned the kind of, I don't know, I guess you could call it the rhetoric of the Cuban Revolutionary Party and the extent to which it was advocating for racial equality and the extent to which that was kind of unusual among political groupings in that time and maybe even in our time. To what extent did the Cuban Revolutionary Party, though, actually incorporate people of color and working class people into its activities? It did to a really dramatic extent, and it's it's sometimes hard to discover it because one of the things that happens when you have a race-blind nationalism is that people are encouraged not to identify themselves in public places by race. And, and by the same token, people are encouraged not to identify others. So, for instance, Schomburg and his colleagues were very very sharp in their criticism of white allies who identified them as black Cubans. They said, wait a second, the idea is we're all Cubans. We, we shouldn't come with a hyphen, right? We're, we're just as much Cuban as you are, and you shouldn't call us, you know, Schumber was Puerto Rican, but his allies who were Cuban, you shouldn't do that. So that means that in the public registries, you know, looking at lists of who was in the movement, you can't tell just from the name whether, whether someone was white or black. But through a number of ways, I've been able to identify, in fact, that people are, were themselves identifying as black and that others were identifying them as, as black or as, as at least partially descended from Africans. Uh, one of the ways to do this was by checking party lists against the U.S. Census. Of course, that only tells you what a U.S. Census taker thought a person was, but it, it's still a pretty good guess that if you look at a, at a list of, say, the, the political club that Schomburg was in, that the leadership of that club, all of the elected officials in that club, were men who were identified on the U.S. Census as, as black or mulatto. And the other thing that I've been able to do is to look at the writings of some of the key figures who did themselves identify as, as black. And in those writings, you, I, I've been able to tell that there existed a kind of a network, not just the Masonic Lodge, but a whole network of organizations founded by key black intellectuals. Many of them, like Schomburg, were from an artisan background but had become intellectuals, uh, journalists, political activists in, in, in a number of ways. That they, they created a whole group of organizations, and as I look at the 
membership of those organizations, I can see that there really was a community of people of African descent who were both in the formal movement, the Cuban Revolutionary Party, and in all of these ancillary social and political and educational clubs, which seem, as I, I suggested before, seem to be their kind of support basis. They have clubs that are organized by them for themselves as men of color, and in some instances as women of color too, but for the most part, these clubs were for men of color. And then they also engage and, and join in the Cuban Revolutionary Party, usually through the vehicle of working class clubs. Most of the party had a very small leadership, and most of the party base was made up of individual clubs created by individual working class collectivities. And among those were some clubs that were mostly white working class, some clubs that were were very clearly mixed, and subclubs that were, seemed to me, at least from what I've been able to tell, were founded by men of color and mostly populated by men of color. And the club that Schomburg joined was one of those. I actually think, interestingly enough, the one that Schomburg joined was one of the rare clubs that was founded by men of color, led by men of color, but actually included in the rank and file a number of working class white men as well. So it was a multiracial club with a black leadership, which is really, again, something fairly unique in in the Atlantic world at this time. A political club that, that has a multiracial base, but not a political club with a multiracial base that nevertheless has a white leadership, as you kind of suspect in these kind of situations. But actually, a place where white working class men, you know, in some ways live up to their ideal of equality by by allowing and supporting a, a leadership that is racially other to them. I think the political club you're referring to, which was part of the Cuban Revolutionary Party, was Las Dos Antillas. What were the mission and goals of that club? And maybe then, and maybe this leads to the answer that might be lingering in some listeners' minds, which is why would a Puerto Rican get so involved in Cuban independence struggles? Right, right. Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the goals of, I mean, it's called Las Dos Antillas, and for those of those listeners who don't speak Spanish, that means the two Antilles. Of course, there are more than two Antilles, but in, in this moment, what they're talking about are the two Caribbean islands, Puerto Rico and Cuba. And actually, those two islands were the two remaining Caribbean colonies of Spain. So they were in, this, in a similar political situation, and it had been since 1868, at least, uh, if not before, that the relatively smaller group of Puerto Ricans who were interested in autonomy from or independence from Spain had been very intensely connected and allied with Cubans with the same project. They lived under the same colonial aegis, they were close to each other, and they had very much overlapping goals. And, you know, they, they both, the leaders from Puerto Rico and the leaders from Cuba who were seeking to renegotiate their colonial status, were both passing through the same you know, metropolitan capital, Madrid. So they knew each other in Madrid, and they, sh they shared publications. So that's the basic outline. The Puerto Rican movement was never as strong. They didn't have the Ten Years' War. They didn't have a rebellion in the 1890s. And so very frequently, they were in a position as part of their Puerto Rican independence or Puerto Rican autonomy struggles to be partners with Cubans in struggles that in some ways were uh, were flaring up or they're, they're most promising on the Cuban side of the equation. You can see that happening among Puerto Ricans, the few Puerto Ricans that are in New York since the 1860s. Now, for Schomburg and his contemporaries, my argument has been for a long time that race 
was a compounding factor of that, right? That when they saw themselves as Antillians and they, they saw their alliance with the Cubans for the working class men and to a lesser extent women from Puerto Rico who, who made their way to New York to join this movement, one of the big attractions was the prominence of Afro-Cubans and, and Afro-Cuban concerns in the movement itself, right? These are men who had been negotiating their tenuous position within the liberal movement on the island of Puerto Rico. In the 18, late 1880s, they have some serious differences with the white liberal leadership. And as a result, many of them moved to New York and very quickly joined the Cuban struggle. And they, in that process, they, they tend to take a more radical stance towards independence. So the club itself, Las Dos Antillas, therefore, is a club that's actually founded by Puerto Ricans with the express intent of having one club that will have both Puerto Ricans and Cubans together in a shared struggle for independence and Republican rule on the two islands. And that's their basic um, lemma, right? We, we are fighting for the independence of the two islands. That's what they kind of publish. But if you read the fine print, and, and I actually was fortunate enough to read the meeting minutes of this political club, it was a secret political club that was undertaking seditious activity as far as the Spanish crown was concerned. You know, independence activism was sedition. They, so they kept the secret, but the person who kept the logbooks happened to be Schomburg. He was the recording secretary of this club. And so his wonderful collection of papers at the Schomburg Center for the Study of Black Culture, um, his notebook, the minute book from this club is there, and I was able to read those minutes. And if, as you read down, you realize, yeah, they're interested in independence. They're trying to raise funds to buy weapons. They want to join expeditions and go and fight because they see their manhood is tied up with, with vigorous military action against what they think of as, as the kind of the, the injury and insult of colonialism. But if you keep reading down, you see that they're also really interested in creating a republic that, to their minds, will live up to fully liberal ideas about the equality of all men, um, and particularly if they want what they identify as kind of colonial vices, including caste and class prejudice, to be abolished by a new Republican order. And they're aware, very clearly aware, that some of their liberal allies would be very happy to create a new Republican order which preserved caste and class prejudices. And, and for this reason, I think that they, they really value, those Puerto Rican men really value the particular connection that they have in these working class mixed race clubs with working class Cubans and Cubans of color who share their their struggle for equality within independence. You write that Schomburg made a dramatic transition from nationalist politics, which saw possibilities for racial advancement through the Cuban and Puerto Rican struggle, to an explicitly racial politics. Tell us more about that. Right. So the, the nationalist politics is what we've been talking about. It's, the, it's Marti's vision that Cuba and, and then extended to Puerto Rico will be places where, on the one hand, racism is abolished, right? So white racists will have to abandon their privilege, according to this theory. But on the other hand, race will be abolished. And so in the sense that black, independent black organizations will have to give up, in some ways, their right to, to speak as anything but members of the broader community. And, and in fact, there are Cubans after independence who, who are accused black Cubans who are accused of racism for doing exactly that. So that's the one kind of politics, a kind of cross-racial national alliance, nationalist alliances, which have great benefits and attractions, but also have the downside. After 1898, when the Puerto Rican and Cuban revolutionary activists in New York, many of them ended up quite disillusioned, especially the Puerto Ricans, right? Because independence doesn't come for Puerto Rico in 1888. Puerto Rico merely shifts from being a Spanish colony to being a U.S. colony. And in that process, the promise of, of radical equality along class and racial lines 
doesn't come to fruition. And in the same way, although the Cuban Republic that's founded in 1901 is quite dramatic in offering full manhood suffrage, regardless of race, so full manhood suffrage and full citizenship to men of color, which is a great victory for this movement, uh, it's nevertheless it is a republic that preserves many, as we, as we know, places don't change that quickly. And many of the prerogatives of race and the, the kind of discriminations and inequalities of race are preserved there. So Schomburg was really disappointed in both the outcome in Puerto Rico and the outcome in Cuba. And at the same time, he was increasingly attracted by some alternative kinds of politics, which seemed to, at the moment to him to promise more in the way of racial advancement and equality. Uh, and those were movements, uh, Pan-Africanist movements, which were Im- important among both African Americans and also West Indian immigrants in New York at the time, and also which connected him with um, with some some activists in Puerto Rico and Cuba as well as some in, in Liberia. This was a, a view in which white allies in nationalist contexts were not to be trusted. They would eventually always kind of renege on whatever promises they made, uh, and that the, the real strength would come through unity across national and ethnic lines among people of African descent. This is really a, one of the early kind of formal politics based on the idea of diaspora. And in fact, Schomburg writes in 1911 a speech in which he argues very clearly that black people should follow the, the example of the Jews. As far as he saw it, and I've, I'm Jewish, and I, you know, I certainly know that some of my ancestors would, would argue with this, but as far as he saw it, Jews, no matter where they lived, they always maintained their primary identity as Jews and their connection to Jews in other places. And this helped them resist the hatred that they experienced among the nations that they lived. And he thought the sons of Africa, the children of Africa should do the same thing. Rather than being divided by linguistic differences or being divided across national lines, they should forge an international racial unity or what he called racial integrity that would then serve as, as a kind of a key power base for claiming full rights in the, in the individual places that they lived, as well as for correcting some of what he saw as, as the kind of alienating properties of Western civilization. He particularly became focused on, on the question of history, and he thought that if he could be the historian who collected the historical documents that showed the links between the different parts of the African diaspora, that that might become the basis for political unity that would be very powerful. So this is what I mean in terms of his radical transformation. He goes from being someone who's really committed to multiracial activism, both at a class level and at a nationalist level, which places the unity and the cordiality among races really at the center of a project of racial equality, right? That the idea mm-hmm. is we're going to do, do better if what we do is create nations which formally acknowledge our equality and, and work within the kind of race-blind structures as strategies for trying to create racial advancement, he, he gives that up. For the most part, he gives that up, and he joins this other model which says, no, we, we should not get into cross-racial alliances. What we should do is build an alliance only among people of color, and what we should do is kind of abandon our, our nationalist frameworks and join together across national boundaries to find strength in our racial unity. Um, and I would say, you know, obviously, both formulations have their advantages and drawbacks, which he discovers. Jesse Hoffman-Garskoff is Associate Professor of History and American Culture at the University of Michigan, and he's written about the world of Arturo Alfonso Schomburg in a couple places, actually, where I found an essay of his in the new volume, The Afro-Latina Latino Reader. We have links on againstthegrain.org.
So the, the the first essay that I wrote about Schomburg uh, actually came out in 2001, and and it, it really focused on the idea of Schomburg as a kind of a unique exception to what we saw as a broad pattern of Puerto Rican and Afro Latino experience in the United States. That that the idea was that that Afro Puerto Ricans and Afro Latinos in general tried to to really attach themselves to Latino communities and to avoid contact with African Americans as a way of both of expressing their own racial identities as they brought with them from the island, but also uh, as a way of avoiding the negative social consequences of being identified as, as black in the United States. I mean, this is certainly a context where you could understand that. One wouldn't want to voluntarily walk into the maw of segregation. Um, so the first essay really tried to make sense of Schomburg's exceptionalism within that framework. But in the process of writing that essay and trying to understand how Schomburg himself moved from one kind of politics and one kind of social situation to another, I started to, to find hints that, in fact, he wasn't all that unusual after all. And so the, the essay that's more recently come out in the Afro-Latino Reader, rather than being primarily about Schomburg, the first essay was called The Migrations of Arturo Schomburg. It's about Schomburg's own transformations. This is about the world of Arturo Schomburg, and it's really about trying to connect the dots and find all of the other people who in the 1890s and, and the early part of the 20th century were similar, more similar to Schomburg than in fact different. And so uh, it's really about situating him in a number of social contexts, political worlds, social worlds, uh, residential patterns that actually make a lot more sense of him, not as an exception, but as somebody who actually is representative of the world from which he came. To what extent did Schomburg's mission become one of confronting the arguments made by the race science, quote, science of the day, the arguments being advanced for the inferiority of non-whites, and related to this, his activities as a collector of books and historical documents, to what extent were his collecting activities related to perhaps that mission? They were directly related. As I just mentioned, his political project was one of, of racial unity across national boundaries. And his collecting project really was a part of that political project. I mean, he was also an intellectual, and we, all intellectuals have both our, our you know, th th what drives us politically, but also, you know, our, our own peculiarities. And that he clearly had uh, fascination with historical documents on their own terms. But his, his expressed reason for collecting was that he saw the mainstream history of the time, and he was really right in his critique of it, the mainstream history of his time, he saw it as debilitating to black political mobilization. He understood that most nationalist histories, and most histories at this time were nationalist, downplayed the capacity for non-white peoples to really even have a history or participate in history. And since history was really imagined at the time as the basis for national greatness, and this was really the way that the German historical profession and then the U.S. historical profession and other places imagined history, that history was about the coming to fruition of a nation. And so it was about looking to the national past and explaining national character and national greatness by looking at the contribution of the national stock, really imagined as racial stock, to world civilization, right? I can give you an example of a person in, in you know, a mainstream historian of the, of the time who saw things this way was Theodore Roosevelt, who happened also to be a major military figure in the, in the war in 1898, as well as then a president in Schomburg's lifetime. And he made the argument that really the history of the United States was the history of the Anglo-Saxon people. Mm. Um, and it was the history of the Anglo-Saxon people in their conflicts with non-white people in one context or another, and that those 
conflicts created a kind of a virile, manly national identity, which was the explanation for the greatness of the American national project. So Schomburg rightly identified, first of all, that blacks were missing from this project. And if you go back and you look at at Roosevelt's writings, for instance, I mean, Schomburg wasn't criticizing Roosevelt in particular, but if you just take him as an example, it's true. I mean, Roosevelt even writes Indians, you know, Native Americans in. He writes them in as adversaries, but he very clearly leaves out African Americans, even the African Americans who were fighting alongside him in Cuba and in, in, when he was down there. Um, so that African Americans are left out, and in a world in which these ideas of history and historical greatness are being used to explain which countries get to have you know modern polities and which ones don't, he saw that this basically wasn't dis- a disempowering move, right? That the idea that blacks were erased from history or that their role in history was diminished to role as kind of uncivilized barbarians was essential to the colonial projects and to the racist projects within nation states, which denied blacks full citizenship or the right to self-govern. So that he, he identified that from a political perspective, but he also identified, and this is, I, I mean, I think in this sense he was really very modern and I think was reflecting on his own experience as someone who had been born in a colony and then had spent the first part of his life in a colony, the second part of his life fighting against colonialism, and then the third part of his life being really a racial activist within the United States, that he was very aware of the psychological effect that being written out of history could have on students, on black students or black people. And he was aware also when he was a Puerto Rican activist of how this, what the effect this has had on Puerto Ricans, that he saw that this is as essentially alienating and it made people feel disentangled from history and disconnected from their own past in a way that he felt was disempowering and would undermine the project of racial unity. So he really saw his collecting project both as a kind of a direct contradiction to the racial theories of leading historians, people like Roosevelt and others, but he also saw it as a kind of um, a self-actualization project as a project that would be a resource for black students, black teachers, and black activists who could then have access to the history that proved that they were active participants in the march of civilization and that that could then be a basis for their future actions. In 1926, Schomburg sold his collection to the New York Public Library. It was later named the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. He became the center's curator until he died in 1938. And Schomburg, fascinating figure and really kind of fascinating what was happening in New York City in the late 1800s, early 1900s around nationalist causes, racialist causes. Um, what relevance do you think Schomburg's activities have for today? What lessons can we learn from what he did and the milieu in which he was active. Yeah, well, your first question, I think, kind of leads us in this in this direction, because you asked the first question was, how many Puerto Ricans were here when Schomburg arrived? And the answer is very, very few. And so we have to recognize first that the world that Schomburg lived in, as much as it shows us about the kind of his own path through politics and social organization of the 1890s and the early 20th century, we have to be somewhat skeptical about how much it will tell us, say, about the 1950s when there are millions of Puerto Ricans in New York and the experience of Afro-Puerto Ricans clearly is somewhat different. But, But I do think, nevertheless, that there are clear lessons to be drawn. I mean, the first is our initial historical attempt to try and understand the Puerto Rican racial experience in New York, in which we understand that, on the one hand, Puerto Ricans are racialized as Latinos as a whole group, that even white people from Puerto Rico oftentimes are considered to be non-whites in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but on the other hand, they also have racial divisions among themselves that they practice among themselves, as well as somewhat different experiences depending on how they're perceived by the receiving society. That's all so clearly visible in, in Schomburg's story, right? He, he's able to simultaneously show us how um, the advantages and disadvantages of alliance with his co-ethnics, with other Puerto Ricans, either as a national cause or once it's no longer national, but a much more of an ethnic kind of a cause, that that offers... Puerto Ricans of African descent and Latinos of African descent, certain kinds of advantages, but doesn't necessarily negate the possibility that they will simultaneously also experience very different kinds of reception from the receiving society and may find all kinds of advantages and 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 opportunities in alliances that they construct along racial lines. And my suspicion is, as much as the world changes between Schomburg's, uh, the period that Schomburg was in and the period that we're in, you know, we see in the later 20th century, that that really remains a constant. It's always possible for people to maintain that kind of dual vision of their belonging and to experience, you know, racism and also possibilities of racial inclusion in multiple contexts at the same time, both within their communities as Puerto Ricans, but also across communities or within their or within communities that they define with people, other people of African descent. Jesse Hoffman Garskoff, University of Michigan professor of history and American culture, links on againstthegrain.org to his book, A Tale of Two Cities, and to the Afro-Latina Latino Reader, in which you can read an essay Jesse wrote that has been the focus of our discussion today. Uh, Jesse, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great fun. And this is CS suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we will look for you next time. Welcome back. And uh, that was an interview on the lifetimes and contributions of Arturo Schomburg. And uh, right now we'll take a musical break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the jazz pianist uh, by the name of Hader Brooks uh, from uh, Los Angeles, California, uh, with that uh, track uh, entitled Jukebox Boogie. Uh, Yeah, so you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, worldwide radio broadcast for uh, today, uh, Saturday, February 18th. 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting links and sending those links and emails out to other potential listeners. The links can also be copied and pasted into other blogs and websites, as well as being shared on social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Right now, we want to uh, cover uh, the ongoing African Union 36 Ordinary Summit that is taking place in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. We're going to listen uh, to some excerpts uh, from the opening address, welcoming address by Ethiopian uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. Let's listen in. And our ambition to begin exporting wheat this year has already materialized. A great achievement for Ethiopia. And I call upon our African Union and development partners to support in unleashing this potential. Excellencies, sadly, the principle of African solution to African problems is not a silver bullet to address all our challenges because not all our problems are the products of our own making. The challenge of climate change is a case in point. We all know that Africa's contribution to global warming is insignificant, yet climate change is already affecting Africa more severely than any other part of the world. To this extent, climate change is an African problem, but its roots lies elsewhere. Global meetings on climate change are rich with the rhetoric of climate justice, the just transition, common but differentiated responsibilities, of parties. These talks, however, are hardly ever backed up with action. And Africa cannot wait. Ethiopia is definitely not waiting for a solution to come from outside. Instead, we are doing all we can to contribute to climate change mitigation and adaptation. Over the past four years, Ethiopia's contribution through our National Green Legacy Initiative has mobilized over 25 million Ethiopians across the nation. Collectively, we have now planted well over 25 billion trees across the country. This impact could be equated to removing 64 million gasoline-powered cars from the roads for a whole year. For my country, Investment in environment protection is not a charity. It is driven by enlightened self-interest. 
for us in Ethiopia. Environmental protection is about everything we are as a society. It is about our ability to feed ourselves. It's about our ability to, cons to conserve water and other precious resources. It is about our ability to preserve peace between adjoining communities. It is about our survival as a nation. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, while Ethiopia's economy has been challenged by the COVID-19 pandemic, a drought, an internal conflict, and the impact of the Russia-Ukraine crisis, we have nevertheless remained resilient as a nation. Our homegrown economic reform program has also helped us to persevere. Through this reform program that has enabled the opening up of the economy, the economy to, con to competition, some of the major service sectors that have been closed to foreign investments for several decades, such as telecom and finance, are being prog progressively opened. We know the COVID-19 pandemic and the current global commodity shortage hurts public finance everywhere. Forced to spend on tackling the pandemic while tax revenues collapsed. Most of our countries peeled up unsustainable debt. Now that the pandemic is over, nearly all of us want to put our economic back on growth trajectory. But this will not happen without sufficient restructuring to make our external debt sustainable. I therefore want to reaffirm our collect collective call for a fast and predictable global framework for debt restructuring that is conducive to accelerating sustainable, inclusive green growth in Africa. Excellencies, Africa today is leading voice for better world. Africa are increasingly resolving their differences by peaceful means. The African, the African continent is fast-tracking the establishment and implementation of a rules-based system on trade governance that promises to create the world's largest free trade area. African countries are engaged in environmental conservation, reforestation, and a massive investment in the generation of clean energy from hydro sources. In short, Africa is leading the world in areas that matter for all humanity, and it is time for Africa's leadership role to be recognized and institutionalized. I would like to use this opportunity to lend my voice yet again for Africa to be represented on the UN Security Council with at least one permanent seat and double non-permanent seat. Thank you. Moreover, Africa also needs to have proportionate representation at the G7, the G20, and similar global forums. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, on this same occasion last year, I called upon all of us to tackle Africa's typically negative portrayal by the global media. I stressed the need for Africa to tell her own story and not allow others to tell, to tell it 
in the service of their own interests. In this respect, please allow me to reiterate yet again the need to establish an African Union Continental Media House. Until Africa tells her own stories, her image will remain distorted, a distortion that affects not just how others view us, but also how we view ourselves. We owe it to ourselves and to our children that Africa's truth needs to be told as they are, untainted with external interests and biases. Excellencies, let me conclude by thanking you once again for standing with Ethiopia in our time of need. Ethiopia and Ethiopians are appreciative of the Pan-African solidarity that was on display in those difficult moments. Together we prevailed. God bless Ethiopia. God bless Africa. I thank you. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister. Your Excellencies, I now have the honor to invite Mr. Ahmed Abugate, Secretary General of the League of Arab States, to make a statement. Mahamat al-Rais Maksal, Rais Gamhuriyat Senegal, Dawlat Rais Wazara Ethiopia, Abi Ahmed, Sahab al-Fakhamati, Ru'asa al-Dual wal-Hukumat, Ru'asa al Welcome back, and uh, that is uh, taken directly from uh, the uh, African Union 36th uh, Ordinary Summit that is taking place uh, this weekend. In Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, we heard uh, a welcoming address uh, from uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed of the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, speaking about the need for Pan-African unity, addressing uh, the issues of climate change, and also international relations. Uh, we heard uh, the introductory remarks from the Secretary General of the League of Arab States, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a uh, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, February 18th, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, we're going to go back uh, to uh, the afternoon 36th Ordinary Summit in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and listen to uh, some remarks uh, from uh, Republic of South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa. So I call this 140th meeting of the Council, I said Commission of the Council, to order. And I'd like to welcome all Council members who are here present. And as I said, welcome all heads of state and government. I'll deliver my opening remarks 
and thereafter we will confirm the agenda of this meeting. Your Excellency <coughs> Musafaki Mohammed, Chairperson of the African Union Commission. Your Excellency Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations. Your Excellencies, members of the Peace and Security Council, and Your Excellency Felix Chisekedi, President of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Your Excellency Paul Kagame, President of the Republic of Rwanda, Your Excellency President João Lorenzo, President of the Republic of Angola, and Your Excellency President William Ruto, President of the Republic of Kenya. And ladies and gentlemen, I take this opportunity to welcome you all to this, the 1140th meeting of the African Union Peace and Security Council held at heads of state and government level. And I'd like to thank the AU Commission for facilitating this meeting. The PSC is meeting to consider the situation in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo this is in the broader context of the peace and security cooperation framework for the DRC and the region, which was signed on the 24th of February 2013. The aspiration of the framework was to usher in peace, security, stability and development in the DRC and the Great Lakes region as a whole, Ten years since it was signed, the Eastern DRC continues to experience periodic cycles of conflict and violence. We agree that the volatile security situation in the Eastern DRC has gone on for far too long and is clearly untenable. We cannot but be troubled by this humanitarian catastrophe that continues to unfold, we cannot but be horrified to see people being butchered, women and girls being violated, and by the blatant violations of human rights and the rules of engagement in conflict. The current cycle of violence is even more worrying and is being fueled by the resurgence of the armed group M23 that was thought to have been dismantled in 2013-2014. The AU Peace and Security Council is essentially charged with the prevention the resolution and management of conflicts in Africa. We must redouble our efforts 
to resolve this dire situation, working in close collaboration with regional processes. In 2022, the Council held two meetings on the situation in Eastern DRC. The Council called for an evaluation of the implementation of the Peace, Security and Cooperation Frameworks to enhance its effectiveness. The Council must take actionable decisions and steps to address challenges emanating from lack of implementation of the framework. If it is not fully implemented in both letter and spirit, the security situation in the Eastern DRC will continue to present challenges. Political will from all parties to the framework, from the government of the DRC, from the region, from the AU, and from the international community is key to the effective implementation of the framework. I wish to commend the efforts of His Excellency President Lorenzo, in mediating between the DRC and the Republic of Rwanda, as mandated by the May 2022 Extraordinary Summit of the African Union. We will later hear a further report from President Lorenzo, flowing from a meeting, a rather long meeting that took place recently. We also commend the East African community for their efforts to assist, resulting in the deployment of the East African Community Regional Force. This Council must encourage the parties to the cooperation framework, particularly the governments of the DRC and the Republic of Rwanda, to focus on the following. Firstly, honoring their commitments contained in the cooperation framework. Secondly, exercising total restraint and de-escalation of the conflict. Thirdly, embarking on genuine dialogue. And fourthly, expeditiously implementing the outcomes of the Luanda and Nairobi processes. And fifthly, the withdrawal from the Eastern DRC of foreign armed groups. And seventhly, urging all signatories and guarantors of the cooperation framework to ensure full enhancement of the regional oversight and ad hoc verification mechanisms to deal with security concerns. Your Excellencies, it is critical that we redouble our efforts to address the root causes of the conflict. This means combating the illegal exploitation of various resources, especially mineral resources, fighting corruption, money laundering and organized crime. 
More needs to be done to build the institutional capacity of regional border management and control, as well as regional justice and law enforcement agencies. With regards to gender-based violence, we call on the UN system to continue to provide capacity and technical assistance for state institutions to maintain standards of accountability concerning sexual and gender-based violence and to strengthen the legal framework for the fight against impunity. We have set ourselves an ambitious goal to silence the guns across our beloved continent, Africa. To achieve this goal, we must show zero tolerance for current and emerging conflicts and redouble our efforts to resolve these conflicts. This should be our focused mission. This is what future generations of this continent expect from us as leaders who are gathered here. I therefore sincerely want to thank you for being present in this meeting as we commence the meeting of the Council. With those words, I thank you. And uh, that was uh, Republic of South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa uh, chairing uh, the Peace and Security Council meeting of the African Union at the 36th uh, ordinary Summit of the African Union that's being held this weekend in Addis Ababa, uh, Ethiopia. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week. What you say has a lot to do with how 
like you here. When it comes around again, it's not going to be the same thing because you're going to say yes and they're going to say no and then everybody's going to start talking and talking and blah, blah everywhere you go. And you know something? You try to give another man a helping hand. You know what he's going to do? He's going to take your kindness for a week of stand. You try to do for others what you'd like for them to do to you. <laughs> Forget it. It's going to be some other kind of thing. So you try to give another man a little a helping hand. He will take your kindness for a week of stand. Never do to others what they do to you. The voice of uh, Donna Hightower from uh, the early 1970s, uh, Donna Hightower uh, being a uh, legendary jazz, uh, blues, rhythm and blues singer. And uh, that was recorded uh, during her uh, period in uh, Western Europe. Uh, the track was entitled, The World Today is a Mess and somewhat of a prophetic uh, title and music. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, February 18th, uh, 2023. Uh, We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now we want to go back uh, to uh, the African Union 36 Ordinary Summit in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, to listen uh, to the briefing uh, from uh, the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is based uh, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It is an affiliate of the African Union uh, Commission. And um, the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, is doing a lot of um, pioneering uh, research and uh, organizing work uh, related uh, to public health on the African continent uh, during uh, the initial phase of the worldwide uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, They uh, were instrumental uh, in collecting data, distributing information, uh, and also securing uh, vaccines uh, for uh, the 55 member African Union states. Uh, Today, they continue to uh, follow uh, the travails of uh, COVID-19 along with other uh, public health threats in Africa, uh, be it uh, the Marburg uh, outbreak in Equatorial Guinea, the cholera outbreak in uh, the Republic of Malawi in Southern Africa, and uh, other uh, threats uh, to uh, public health across the African continent and indeed across the world. Let's listen to a briefing uh, from the African Center for Disease Control and Prevention at uh, this uh, African Union Summit taking place in Ethiopia this weekend. Before we get to that, uh, just a quick reminder of the WhatsApp that you can use to send in your questions. It is a plus 251-94-550-2310. Plus 251-94-550-2310. But as usual, we're happy to talk to you live and also to take your questions that you might want to put through our question and answer section. We are coming to you in English and French, so please feel free to select the language of your choice. For the moment, though, let me bring in the acting, di- the acting director of the Africa CDC, Dr. Ahmed Ogwell, for his briefing for today. Ahmed, good morning, and it's over to you. 
Thank you very much, um, Wayne. Good morning, good afternoon, uh, good evening, wherever you're joining us from. Welcome to our weekly press briefing on public health events here in Africa. Um, let me start by um, today in on the continent, we are actively following up um, nine different public health events. Uh, that is nine uh, different public health events that we are following up. We are actively involved on the ground in four of those, um, and um, we will be sharing a little bit of detail um, on uh, at least uh, um, four of those that we are following up are here on the continent. The rest, um, we are working closely with the affected member states because they already have capacity uh, and we are providing remote uh, technical assistance uh, and uh, medical countermeasures as may be required. So um, <clears throat> of the uh, different public health events that um, we are actively following on the continent, they include COVID-19, um, they include uh, Marburg virus disease, the outbreak that is in Equatorial Guinea, um, diphtheria in Nigeria, uh, monkeypox in multiple countries, cholera also in multiple countries, Lassa fever in multiple countries, um, measles in multiple countries, dengue in uh, Senegal, uh, the flooding in Mozambique, and the tenth is uh, the Sudan um, Ebola virus disease uh, that we are now monitoring post-declaring it over uh, in Uganda. So these are the 10 that we are actively following up. This, the ones that we'll talk about today are COVID, Marburg, diphtheria, and uh, uh, cholera. Um, and I'll start with COVID. As of today, 12.4 million uh, cases that we've documented on the continent, and this accounts for 2% of uh, the global cases that have been reported across uh, the world. We have unfortunately lost 256,705 individuals here on the continent, which gives us a case fatality rate of 2.1%, still double the global average. Um, and these uh, numbers constitute uh, just over 4.1% of the deaths that have been reported due to COVID uh, globally. Um, recovery as, is at 95% um, of those that have been uh, exposed. Um, while we look at uh, the weekly um, uh, update and trends, when we compare the current epidemiological week six with week five, we see that the number of new cases that we documented during week six uh, were 1,256 new cases on the continent, and this is a 72% decrease when we compare it with AP week five when we had over 4,500 cases. Um, looking at deaths, during AP Week 6, we have documented 12 new deaths as a result of COVID here in Africa, which is a 20% increase when we compare with AP Week 5, uh, when we had 10 uh, new deaths. But when we look at um, the four-week trend analysis, we see that uh, for new cases, we have documented a 47% decrease for COVID-19 
while the number of new deaths we have documented 5% decrease um, for deaths attributed uh, to COVID-19. So the general trend on the continent now is uh, quite flat um, with uh, indications that we may be seeing further decreases in numbers and also in, in deaths. Vaccination continues across the continent. We have received uh, 1.081 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccines, and we have administered um, 900 million, giving us 83% administration rate for those uh, COVID-19 vaccines that we have received uh, here on the continent. In terms of coverage, we are now at uh, 43.91% of uh, the eligible population, and for us that is 12 years and above. Um, and this is just um, under 408 million people that have been uh, fully vaccinated uh, on the continent of those who are 12 years and above. Um, for boosters, we are still at 4.86%. Uh, we increased um, in the last week uh, just over 64,000 individuals who have gotten uh, they are extra boosters. And right now we stand at 45.1 million um, of those in Africa who have um, uh, gotten their boosters. And we encourage really that we continue to get our boosters for those who already are vaccinated and are eligible. And for those who are not vaccinated, we encourage them to get vaccinated. What we are seeing with these numbers of um, uh, COVID-19 vaccines is that um, due to the slowdown in um, uh, active uh, campaigns, um, the numbers have uh, uh, decreased. And uh, also um, due to uh, the holiday season, we also saw those numbers coming down. And right now we are trying to bring them up uh, once again. Uh, we are seeing that countries who have uh, targeted um, uh, drives for particularly the youth whether it is in institutions or in the general public, those numbers increase more than where there are no targeted campaigns in a country. And this is because Africa is largely youthful. And so when we target the youth, we target a very significant proportion of our population. Our recommendation is one that every um COVID-19 vaccine that has already been given emergency use licensing is good for you. Don't choose vaccines um, unless there are special reasons. Uh, do not choose vaccines. Uh, please get the vaccine that is available. All vaccines that have been given emergency use licensing are good for you. Um, second is we are really encouraging uh, people to get their booster doses for those who already have uh, been uh, fully uh, vaccinated. And third, um, we are encouraging uh, targeted campaigns, whether it is to health workers, it is those with uh, um, uh, comorbidities, or it is to the youth. We are uh, targeting, uh, uh, we are encouraging targeted um, uh, drives so that we get the numbers going up and the general public being more and more protected. Under our Saving Lives and Livelihoods program, um, we still have 49 countries that we are engaging out of the 55, and out of those 19 are actively implementing uh, this particular uh, program. 
we have now increased by over 200,000 since the last uh, since the last uh, um, uh, briefing, and uh, uh, the Saving Lives and Livelihoods uh, program stands at over 12.8 million doses facilitated across uh, the continent. We are quite proud of uh, this area of work because it has driven up the, um, the proportion of those who are fully vaccinated uh, from the lows of 20s that we were seeing uh, some months back to now uh, almost uh, reaching uh, 50%. So COVID-19, um, our mainstay right now is vaccination, and um, we are looking forward uh, to the numbers on the continent increasing um, uh, more and more each week. The second is Marburg uh, virus uh, disease outbreak in Equatorial Guinea. You will recall that um, uh, the Ministry of Health um, and Social Welfare of uh, Equatorial Guinea uh, did announce on the 13th of February um, a confirmed outbreak of Marburg virus in uh, its northwestern uh, province called Kientem. Um, out of all the cases that um, have been tested in the laboratory, one case has been confirmed. Um, nine deaths um, have also been uh, documented. Um, and um, to date, we have 21 individuals in isolation as we continue with the testing um, for uh, uh, those uh, samples. The mainstay uh, right now is limiting movement, um, providing information to members of the public, um, and uh, ensuring that uh, all those who have uh, symptoms that are similar uh, to um, those that were reported in the beginning, including fever, uh, fatigue, uh, some blood stain, the vomiting, and diarrhea, they are all being provided the opportunity uh, to be tested uh, and also being given um, uh, special uh, isolation units where they are being looked after as we continue with the testing. No new case has been uh, laboratory confirmed uh, so far. We as uh, Africa CDC have deployed a team of experts to Equatorial Guinea who are right now supporting the Ministry of Health and the government uh, of Equatorial Guinea in um, coming up with a good uh, plan of uh, mitigating uh, this particular outbreak. Uh, we are also working very closely with the uh, Equatorial Guinea's neighbors, particularly Cameroon and Gabon, because the area is, uh, it borders both countries. Um, so we are working very closely with uh, those two countries to ensure uh, that we limit the risks of uh, cross-border spillover uh, for this particular case. One big challenge we have are uh, test kits, and uh, we as Africa CDC are working around the clock to try and get uh, test kits to Equatorial Guinea and also to Cameroon and uh, Gabon um, for to ensure that uh, we have a very short turnaround time for samples being tested uh, in the laboratory. This is a very important um, uh, time uh, because we have a lot of experience now with hemorrhagic fevers and we want to make sure that we bring all that experience to bear in Equatorial Guinea so that we arrest uh, this outbreak as soon uh, as possible. Um, the third um, that I'll share today is diphtheria in Nigeria. Since the last update, um, we have uh, documented 
616, that is 616 new cases of diphtheria, um, including two new deaths and all of them in Nigeria. Cumulatively, since the beginning of this particular outbreak, uh, five states uh, in Nigeria have reported a total of um, um, 739 cases um, with 40 deaths uh, in total so far. Um, uh, over 80% actually of the cases uh, that we are seeing, um, that we are reporting for the last uh, one week are in very young people, uh, 2 to 14 year olds, and this is uh, uh, very much linked to the poor vaccination coverage. Uh, that is a result of uh, one of the results of um, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic when uh, um, routine immunization was disrupted. And that's why you see so many cases in the young people uh, who may have missed out on um, uh, vaccination uh, in the years past. Um, and we are seeing also that of the number of cases, uh, the vast majority um, are in areas where the disruption occurred. Um, and so um, uh, we are also working with the government of Nigeria to see how we close the gap of vaccination uh, for uh, uh, diphtheria. Um, a team has been put in place by the government there, and we are supporting that team uh, remotely uh, through our regional office, uh, which is based at uh, the World, I mean, the West Africa Health Organization in uh, Abuja. The fourth um, and final one that I will share today is cholera. Cholera, um, since the last briefing, um, we have um, just over 11,260 uh, new cases um, and 322 uh, new deaths from eight of um, our AU member states. And these are Burundi, Ethiopia, Kenya, Malawi, Mozambique, Somalia, South Africa, and Zambia. Since the beginning um, of this uh, outbreak, we have for this year, uh, 2023, we have documented uh, about 33,000 uh, uh, cases and just over 1,000 deaths uh, for cholera in about uh, uh, 10 uh, countries. Um, and uh, this means that uh, we are actually losing um, uh, three people out of every 100 uh, cases for cholera, uh, and we want to roll this back as quickly uh, as possible. It is also worthy to note that uh, of all the cases that um, uh, we have reported here, 76% of them are actually being reported from Malawi. And um, uh, there is, of course, a likelihood that uh, the neighbors uh, that are reporting cases, including South Africa, Mozambique, Zambia, it, it could be possible that they will spill over across the borders. We are still studying that very carefully to ensure that uh, we know uh, the sources of um, these uh, outbreaks in the neighboring countries and elsewhere uh, on the continent of Africa. So when we look at Malawi in a little bit of detail, we see that since the last update, we have documented 9,000 new cases um, and 292 new deaths, giving us a case fatality rate of 3.3%. Uh, um, uh, it is also um, important to note that um, since the beginning of the outbreak, in March of 2022, uh, in Malawi, um, we have documented over 44,000 uh, cases, 
uh, and uh, the outbreak has been reported uh, in 29 of the districts in Malawi. Um, and um, uh, this uh, tells you that it is across the country. On the 13th of February, though, His Excellency, the President of Malawi, um, Mr. Lazarus Chakwera, launched the End Cholera Campaign, where he galvanized uh, the public and uh, stakeholders to come together uh, to uh, increase the momentum uh, for support to the response efforts uh, in that country. Africa CDC participated, and uh, we have a team on the ground uh, that continues to support um, uh, the government of Malawi in its efforts. Indeed, in the coming days, we are also going to send a team to Zambia upon the request of the government there uh, so that we can uh, support them in bringing under control uh, their own outbreak, um, the, where the numbers um, have been increasing. Uh, so far, we have 125 cases that have been documented in uh, Zambia. Um, and uh, although two of those confirmed cases had travel history, uh, Malawi and Mozambique, um, the local numbers need to also be brought uh, under control. So we are actively involved in this cholera uh, outbreak uh, in um, Malawi, and shortly we'll also be in uh, uh, Zambia upon invitation. All the other countries, we are providing them with the capacity building, um, remote support for countermeasures um, as, as we watch um, their, how the countries are handling and if they need extra help and we'll be able to provide that as quickly as possible. Then let me go to um, a few announcements. Um, uh, first is um, on, um, you will recall that we talked about an unknown uh, flu-like um, uh, uh, disease that was in uh, China and uh, had been documented in uh, uh, African citizens from one country who have traveled there recently, that is Nigeria. Uh, we have been uh, regularly in touch with both countries, and um, uh, we can say that that particular situation is now resolved, uh, and uh, the bilateral um, uh, communication that has been going on between China and Nigeria um, uh, have been successful, and so it is no longer a public health event of concern for us here uh, at Africa uh, CDC. The second announcement I would like to make is um, uh, our side event um, during this uh, uh, summit. Uh, this is the Africa CDC Ministerial Executive Leadership Program. Uh, we are having a forum on the 18th of uh, February, and that is this Saturday, uh, starting at 7 a.m. East African time, um, where we are bringing together uh, ministers of health from across the continent uh, to discuss how they can be more effective in uh, uh, providing um, uh, leader, transformative, uh, transformative leadership uh, through the new public health order. Uh, it will be a whole day event. It will be a closed event, uh, except for uh, the opening ceremony in the morning at 7, which will involve um, now confirmed 11 heads of states uh, who have confirmed attendance for that 18th uh, uh, meeting uh, where they will give solidarity messages to the health ministers. Um, and the rest of the day will be a closed session where we'll be discussing with the ministers how do we refine our political strategy, how do we refine um, our leadership on the continent uh, under the new public health order so that we are more ready for any uh, health security issues that may come into the future. 
a link is going to be shared uh, for that um, uh, opening session where we expect to stream it live for you to also be able to hear the solidarity messages from our heads of state. Secondly is um, as we try to accelerate implementation of our uh, Bingo initiative, these are the youth across the continent, we have uh, uh, opened the call for application for Southern and Western Africa regions, uh, and we intend to pick 100 young people from each region. Um, so uh, that is up on our website for Southern and Western Africa young people to make applications, and we are looking forward uh, to their uh, participation in uh, the AU, uh, the Africa CDC AU Bingwa initiative. Um, I would also like to make um, some clarification on uh, the statement that we issued yesterday on the pandemic fund. Um, I would like to be clear that we are not, and uh, we were not criticizing um, the pandemic fund. We were making our position known that um, the call has been opened. The pandemic fund is a very important new tool, uh, particularly for us here on the continent. And um, uh, we are encouraging our African countries uh, to express their interest and, in fact, make uh, applications to the fund. Uh, but Africa CDC, due to the nature of um, our status right now, we are not able to compete as a recipient. We can only be able to make our applications as an implementing entity because that is our role. You, we cannot be given the role of coordination and then we go and we start uh, presenting ourselves to the world as uh, only implementers. We are not implementers, we are coordinators. And therefore, um, our new status does not uh, give us the latitude uh, of um, uh, going to be an implementer and a recipient. We can only go out in our, in our status of uh, coordinators of the continent's uh, health security efforts and also conveners of our member states. So whatever we receive, we receive on behalf of the member states and not just ourselves. That is the, the message of the statement yesterday, and we made it public because there are so many questions that are coming in from so many uh, different uh, institutions, members of the public, the media, and we wanted that to be clear once and for all. We are not criticizing the fund. We are just unable, and we are very sad about it. We are unable to participate uh, because of the status that we have and because we have not yet been uh, accredited as an implementing partner uh, by uh, the fund. Um, finally, is uh, during this summit we've been holding, uh, we will be hold, we have been and we are continuing to hold various bilateral uh, uh, meetings with uh, partners and our member states, uh, all in an effort to strengthen um, uh, our collaboration with uh, the different uh, sectors of health, the different member states, um, and our interest is to make sure that um, our mandate that goes beyond um, health emergencies is not only understood, but we craft uh, partnerships and collaborations that are going to be benefiting uh, the continent. And we've had good conversations around manufacturing. Um, we've had good conversation around TB, around HIV, around malaria, um, and um, uh, we continue uh, uh, to expand those collaborations with different uh, member states and different uh, partners during this time. We'll give a comprehensive uh, uh, brief on this next week after we've had uh, all the meetings, and uh, we'll also share uh, the way forward 
um, that has come out of uh, those meetings during the summit. Uh, thank you very much, and back to you, Wei. Thank you, Ahmed. Our first question is coming from Coletta, but I'm just seeing that Coletta has put up her hand. So perhaps she prefers to come through live instead of the WhatsApp questions. Coletta, do you want to speak live or should I read out your questions for you? If it's okay, I can, I can, uh, I can speak out the questions. That's okay. Did you say you want to ask the questions or I can read them out? I can ask the questions, Madam. If okay, that's okay, please go ahead. Please go ahead, Colette. Okay, thank you very much, Madam Wine, and thank you, Dr. Kari. My name is Colette Anjoy. I'm now with uh, TRT Africa. Uh, Doctor, I'd like to kindly um, seek your indulgence of the fact that uh, the World Trade Organization members uh, extended the deadline to establish whether the trips waiver should be extended to COVID-19 uh, diagnostics and therapeutics. How much does that uh, push us back, if that's the case, in terms of uh, the continent uh, striving to have its own self-dependence in terms of production of our own therapeutics and diagnostics. Then secondly, if you could kindly shed, shed more light on Marburg, uh, what do we need to know generally? Is there a danger of the spread? And what lessons can we learn from countries that have um, really succeeded in, in uh, flushing out uh, uh, the, the disease in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in previous times? Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Colette. Um, on the question of uh, the extended deadline on uh, trips flexibilities at WTO, um, we um, are very uh, keen that um, agreements are made in a way that makes it possible for African countries to access intellectual property at the time of need. Um, our position has always been that um, we have the TRIPS uh, uh, agreements and the flexibilities that are in the TRIPS agreements are self-executing um, and they should be uh, allowed uh, to be implemented immediately we have a public health event of international concern or for us here on the continent as soon as we have a public health um, uh, emergency of continental security. These agreements are clear and what is required is implemented. We can discuss dates and the deadlines of the flexibilities uh, under TRIPS agreement was for speed when there is a public health emergency. And it is still our position today uh, that the TRIPS flexibilities should be allowed um, to be implemented uh, as is uh, without pushing dates uh, further and further away from a public health uh, emergency. Um, secondly, on Marburg, um, Marburg is a hemorrhagic fever. Um, so uh, pretty much in the same way uh, of Ebola, the risks um, um, at transmission routes and the risks are very similar. We've had experiences across the continent, uh, most recently in uh, uh, Uganda and, um, and Ghana, and we have a lot of experience on how to manage this particular um, uh, virus uh, when, it's, uh, when the outbreak uh, gets into the human population. We are bringing that experience to bear. At the moment, we do not see uh, a risk beyond uh, the community that is affected. And we are working with uh, uh, the government of Equatorial Guinea uh, to uh, keep uh, that particular risk low. We are also working with the governments of Cameroon and that of Gabon uh, to 
uh, limit any uh, spillover across the borders. And you know, these are rural communities, uh, and so borders uh, sometimes uh, uh, are not as easy to identify, but we are working with the communities around there to ensure that it doesn't spill uh, over. Um, uh, in terms of what the members of the public should do, just like in the case of Ebola, um, we need to ensure that anyone who shows any of the symptoms, whether it is fever, it is vomiting, uh, uh, unexplained the fatigue, they should get medical attention quickly. And members of the public uh, should not um, uh, expose themselves to those uh, who are unwell until they have been uh, managed. Uh, we should, um, at the same time, and this is to us as Africa CDC and the government, ensure that our testing capacities have been increased. We are doing that right now, procuring a lot of test kits so that we can be able to have a quick turnaround time for uh, any suspected case. Uh, so we should be able to make those available as close to uh, the epicenter as possible. And thirdly, we are doing um, a careful uh, sequencing of the samples to see uh, what the source of this particular outbreak this time uh, actually is. It will help with limiting uh, risks uh, within the community uh, and beyond. So um, exactly the same um, advice we've been giving for Ebola is what we are giving for Marburg, and um, uh, we uh, are uh, working very closely with the three governments um, uh, to ensure that uh, we keep uh, this outbreak as small as possible. Thank you. Thank you, Ahmed. The next question is coming from Kara Anna. In fact, she has two questions, and she is with Associated Press. So the first question, which is split into a number of questions, she says, what does it mean when you say that countries with cholera outbreaks do not have immediate access to vaccines? Do you mean that they have no vaccines at all, or is there some delay? And if so, how long is the delay? So that's one question. Now we go on to question number two. Have MPOX vaccines arrived in any African countries as yet? And which ones? And if they have not yet arrived, when will they arrive? Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you, Kara. Um, when I say there's no immediate access, it is that uh, production is actually going on, and the production is not enough to be able to meet the demand um, because of the multiple outbreaks across the world. And here on the continent, um, uh, the countries have not yet, they had a stockpile which is finished, and now we are waiting for the next round. So they don't have them physically, but it is on a, a list. Uh, as the production continues, then countries based on their list are going to be receiving uh, those uh, doses of cholera vaccines. Um, uh, the delay is um, uh, something that is very difficult to predict right now, um, and we'll come back to you with that, with the latest information, because uh, we have not followed very closely how soon they will get that. Our counterparts in WHO have been doing that close uh, follow-up. So um, production is going on, but it is not yet at country level. Um, Mpox vaccines have not yet arrived on the continent, and um, uh, we are working very closely with our partners, and we hope that in another two weeks stops, we should be able to get the Mpox vaccines here uh, on the continent. Uh, which countries will receive first? Um, um, 
will depend on those that are more acute in terms of uh, numbers and uh, um, uh, uh, I mean the increase in the in the numbers of new cases and uh, the overall burden of uh, each and every country. That is not it has been quite stable. It has not been changing a lot. Uh, but at the time of arrival of the vaccines, those are the criteria that we use uh, to be able to take them uh, to the countries where uh, there is more acute need and there's a bigger burden uh, for uh, mpox uh, infections. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you. We have uh, questions from Sarah Jerving, who is with DevEx. So Sarah says, can you please let us know at what points during the AU summit Will there be news on Africa's health institutions, in particular news on Africa's CDC's next steps on operationalization of autonomy, such as the announcement of the new Director General or approvals of frameworks and the Africa Epidemic Fund? And she also wants to know any news that you might have on the Africa Medicines Agency. Then she goes on to say, how will news on these two institutions that comes out of the summit be communicated to the public? I could also support with information on that. And finally, she says, will there be a press conference on this as there was last February? So that's quite a number of questions for you coming from Sarah. Yeah, no, thanks. Thank you, Sarah. And on the issue of how it will be communicated to the public, um, Wayne is here. That is exactly uh, her role. She will explain that. Now, at what point uh, will we know of the outcomes um, of Africa, both Africa CDC and AMA? We will know at uh, the point of closure of the summit on Sunday evening. Um, and all communication um, around all the items that are being discussed uh, are going to come out after the summit uh, has closed. Um, uh, on AMA, uh, it is uh, the same path um, that uh, discussions um, continue until the closure of the summit, and at the closure of the summit is when we will know the next steps for AMA uh, as well. Uh, of course, Africa CDC's steps are a little bit farther than those of AMA, uh, but all that is going to be made available um, going to be known and made available at the end of the summit. On communication to the public, I will leave that to, uh, to Madam Wayne, uh, because that's the role of, uh, uh, her department. Madam Wayne? Thank you very much. Um, Sarah, we would be communicating such information through our digital platforms mostly, and, uh, those would be the website of the African Union, the website of the Africa CDC, and the social media platforms of, uh, of both. So if you can just uh, look out for that, the programs for the summit are out and they are on the website, and that will guide you to know when those particular issues are going to be discussed. Uh, but normally uh, the information would come out uh, publicly once all the decisions have been uh, adopted. Um, so we will be liaising very closely with the Africa CDC. Uh, together we will then uh, decide on uh, the release of that information as soon as it is made available. If a briefing is then called, uh, we are running a number of press briefings during the summit. So if a press briefing is called, then that would also be another avenue 
for the release of that information. I hope that helps. Please do go to the African Union uh, website so that you can follow the program and you can know when the issues are being discussed and uh, then the communication teams would be in a position to release that information. I hope that uh, that helps, but if you have any further questions, uh, please let's continue uh, talking. Neke is also online, uh, and I think you have his numbers, and you also have the number of the WhatsApp group uh, that we use to coordinate uh, these uh, press briefings of the Africa CDC, so you could also check through that. All right, now we go back to Kara Anna, and um, this is an old one, actually. Uh, the one on MPOX, I think it has come again. Sarah Jerving, do you have a question? I see that you have your hand up. Do you have a follow-up question? Hello, Sarah. Sarah, do you have a follow-up question, or is that an old hand? Oh, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, sorry about that. Um, thank you so much for that clarification on the, um, the AU Summit. I do have a, another question. Um, uh, Dr. Ahmed, um, I'm making the assumption that your comments on the pandemic fund are in reference to a title of a story we wrote yesterday, which included the word uh, criticism, um, which kind of speaks to the criticism of exclusion as an implementing entity, but not of the fund itself. Um, so your statement does say that, uh, quote, this has con considerably constrained the ability of Africa CDC in the context of the pandemic fund to play its AU-mandated role as convener and coordinator of health security in Africa, end quote. Um, so I'm not sure how that statement isn't making a point that there are structural changes needed, which is a criticism of the current exclusion of Africa CDC as an implementing agency or entity. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Um, our role is coordinating our member states and stakeholders' response on the continent. And also our role is convening um, our member states and acting as... Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Dr. Ahmed Agwell. Uh, the acting director of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, speaking, uh, giving the uh, briefing of the Africa CDC uh, at uh, this year's uh, 36th uh, African Union Ordinary Summit taking place in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. Uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, you can have access to this program by going to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. You can also read the Pan-African Newswire by going to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with uh, the music of Detroit's own Kenny Burrell from the album entitled Freedom from 1963. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Signing off and have a beautiful week.
Thank you.